Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. All right, so I have a pretty big announcement to make. 88 Cups of Tea is turning five years old on Saturday, August 8th. Um, this is massive. I am blown away that we have made it this far as a community. And I am so grateful to each and every one of you from our listeners all the way back from five years ago, from the very first day of this launch. And all of our newcomers, thank you all so much for making 88 Cups of Tea what it is today. I am going to host and throw an 88 Cups of Tea five-year anniversary party and event on Zoom on Saturday, August 8th in the evening for two hours. So if you would love to join me and fellow storytellers to celebrate our five-year milestone over on Zoom, please make sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash RSVP so you can see all the details. And also you can make your RSVP to let me know that you will be there on Saturday, August 8th. I cannot wait. I cannot, I really cannot wait for this. And I can't wait to see you all. So again, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash RSVP. For our show today, we have literary agent Molly O'Neill. Molly is a literary agent over at Root Literary. Books that Molly have worked on have gone on to become number one New York Times bestsellers. They've also gone on to become major motion pictures and received countless awards, honors, and accolades. And most recently, her clients' books have been honored to receive National Book Awards Long List nomination the William C. Morris Young Adult Debut Award, the Asian Pacific American Award for Young Adult Literature, the Schneider Family Book Award, and were also tapped as ALA Odyssey Honors for Audiobooks and Goodreads Choice Awards nominees, among many others. For today's conversation, Molly shared so much wisdom, industry knowledge, and publishing advice that we had to make her episode a two-parter. For today's part one, we talk about the power of story and how it helped create bonds between her and her loved ones. We discuss her love for children's books, how the publishing industry helps establish relationships between stories and humans, and the steps that Molly took to break into the publishing industry. Further in, we talk about how she became the editor for the Divergent series and the importance of editing or representing books you love versus books that are on trend. She gives us an in-depth look at the many roles editors hold, like helping authors' stories come alive on the page, acting as a book's advocate to sales reps, and being an advocate for the readers so that they have a fantastic reading experience. And later, Molly begins to tell us how she moved from editor to literary agent. All right, so that's an overview of part one. So make sure you hang tight for the release of part two because we're going to get into it even more. Now let's jump right in. Listeners, I am so excited to have Molly O'Neill with us today. Molly, how are you? 
I am good. It's the weekend. I can't complain. (laughs) I would love for us to rewind as far back. I want to get into your history and just your upbringing. And I was reading a lot of cool facts about you that I'm just like, wait, this person does it all. And listeners will understand exactly what I'm talking about once we get there. So this is (laughs) going to be a fun one. All right. So first off, where were you born and raised? So I was born in New Jersey, but I lived there for two weeks. I was not supposed to live there at all. I came early, which is perhaps the first and last (laughs) time in my life I've been early for anything as I think about it. I'm a a perpetual seven minutes late because I'm always trying to do one extra thing. Uh, Yes, me too. (laughs) Many of my friends are are listening along. They're nodding. But I grew up in Houston, Texas, in the suburbs. I thought I was a city girl, of course. Houston's a big city. It's always in the like top, you know, four or so. of jostles for position with a couple others. But really, as I look back at it now, I grew up in the suburbs. (laughs) How did you first fall in love with reading, storytelling? Because I know we'll get into this later that you got a English major, right? Mm -hmm. From Marquette Mm -hmm. University in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So you clearly had a love for stories. How did that come about? And I'd also love to hear how the backdrop of Texas was involved Mm -hmm. with that and if it sparked your imagination and curiosity. Yes. Oh, such good questions. I feel like we could probably spend the whole call just on these two. I am down with that. So I I was a reader my whole life. As I think about it now, I attribute a lot of that to my mom, who had been an elementary school teacher before I was born. So I, I grew up in a house of books and sort of inhaled books all the time. One of my earliest memories, you know how like you have the memory that you, you think you have the memory because you've heard the story so many times? Yep. Like not that kind of memory, but my own earliest memory, I yeah. think, is being about five or six years old, sitting on the couch with my mom in our living room, both of us crying our eyes out over the end of Charlotte's Web because <gasps> she hadn't ever read it before. And so oh she God. she didn't know what the end, <laughs> the end was coming. So she didn't like prepare me. And so we both just were, were weeping and were so distraught. And this is probably why I remember it as a kid because it was so out of the ordinary. We were so upset that we skipped nap time and just like snuggled on the couch instead, which, you know, when you're a kid, like anything that sort of disrupts your normal really catches your attention because until you encounter like something absurd like that, you don't even really know it can happen for the first time. So that was like, as I look back, one of my (laughs) really earliest encounters with the power of story, I guess. Yes. And the way it can can change you and move you. And transform you and also create bonds with your loved ones or just people in general. Absolutely. And so my mom, as I was growing up, we, you know, read a chapter of something every evening, you know, for a while it was, she read to both me and my brother and my dad was involved too. We'd sort of do family reading. And then as we, my brothers and I are each about four years apart. So eventually it became just us. And I, I remember sort of the, the, era where my mom was reading a chapter a night of either Little Women or Anne of Green Gables. Basically, she wasn't reading fast enough. So I I got busted for sneaking (laughs) the rest of the book during the day. And she was like, oh, fine, just finish it yourself. And I was like, hey, that wasn't the point. Just needed to know what happened. Uh, (laughs) But actually, and uh, one more one more story about my my family. Um, when I was growing up, my mother and I had this ritual that really 
extended probably, you know, all of high school, definitely. And when I would come home for college vacations, even a little bit now, while I'm very much an adult where my mom's a very light sleeper. And so every night when she was ready for bed, she would come into my room and I would be sitting in my room reading and she'd say, Molly, it's time for bed. Turn out your light, put down the book. Sure, sure, sure. I'm just going to finish this chapter. I'm just going to finish this page. I'm almost done. You know, complete stalling tactic. And we would repeat this. She would come back several times increasingly frustrated because she wanted to sleep and the light coming from my room was keeping her awake. And, oh. and I would, you know, just continually just like kick the can of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. Finally, she would get mad. She would come and she would take the book and storm oh, out and turn my light off. Oh my God. And she would be annoyed and she'd be half asleep. So she'd like stash the book, you know, wherever she was like in her sort of routine of like going around the house, you know, settling it down for the evening. So I would go looking for the book later <laughs> and sometimes I'd find it, but sometimes I wouldn't because it would be like tucked somewhere in her closet or, you know, wherever. So a couple weeks later, I'd be like, mom, can I, can I have that book back? <laughs> and sometimes she'd say yes. And, you know, but, but sometimes she'd have forgotten where she put it. So my response to this was, well, I'm not going to stop reading. So the next night I would just pick up a different book and repeat the process, which, so at any given time, I was probably reading 15 books, which there could be no better preparation for a literary agent or an editor who at any given time is reading countless projects in <laughs> countless stages. So oh my some years God. ago, I told my mother how, how well she had prepared me for my future career. <laughs> you must always be thankful to her for that fire, okay? <laughs> So the moral of the story, I guess, is if your mom ever hid your books that you were reading in her closet, you might have a future in publishing somewhere. <laughs> exactly. And our parents should be grateful and they get the credit. That's all. You know what I mean? So you always loved reading. It was like kind of infused in your cells in a way, in your blood. So from there, did you know, I know again, that you went to college, uh, got your English major. Were you going hoping like that you wanted to be a writer at first or just wanting to be involved somehow in the writing world? My thought was that I wanted to be a writer. I think that's oh. where a lot of us start. And my university had three different tracks for an English major. You could be basically a literature major where you were, you know, reading like all the Brit Lit and the Fairy Queen and like your career path was probably go to grad school and get a master's in literature and become a professor yourself. So there was mm. that lane. There was a lane that was specifically about teaching literature. So mm. you're probably going to become a junior high teacher. And then there was the third track, which was really the creative writing track. But for whatever reason, my, my university called it writing intensive English, which <laughs> sounds very highfalutin and scares a lot of people when I say yes. that that's my degree. And they go like, whoa, <laughs> that sounds very serious. But we liked it in college because the acronym for our major was WINE. So we were oh. WINE majors, which we took very seriously. <laughs> Drank a lot of terrible box wine, as you do at that age. <laughs> So I was a, a writing intensive English major. And I was also partly through school, I started a elementary education major. My thought was, okay, you know, being a writer, maybe not 
always a guaranteed thing. And my my university did a lot of volunteer work in connection to the community. It was a Jesuit college, very socially activist. And so I had been doing some volunteer work in schools and realized just how much I liked working with kids. So through most of my college years, that's I was double majoring in English and in elementary ed. And I was trying to do it all in four years. You know, when you're when you're in college, sometimes you think you have no time when in mm-hmm. fact you have all the time in the world. But I look back at myself trying to do this all in four years. And and when you're an elementary ed major, you have to do a lot of teaching hours in the classroom. But along the way, this interest in children's books kept cropping up. I would go with my friends on, you know, a weekend to, there was a great independent bookstore at the time in the city of Milwaukee called Schwartz Books. They've they've since gone away, um, or I think they got bought out and renamed, but I would go to to the bookstore with my friends and I would spend the first 10 minutes in the grown-up, like, literature section, as one does when one is an English major, you spend your time reading literature. Inevitably, I would creep off and my friends would find me later in the children's book section with, you know, sitting on the floor with like stacks of picture books all around. And I think that was probably the first signal that like this was where my heart was. Mm -hmm. And I had incredible professors in college. I, I give them a lot of credit because it was really exactly what a liberal arts education is supposed to do. They recognized that I had this curiosity in children's books, and none of them knew exactly what to do with it or how to help me because it was a very different era. I graduated from college in 2000. So in the mid-90s when I was in school, Harry Potter was just starting to be a thing in the U.S. And it wasn't really a thing yet. It was Mm -hmm. just starting to be published in the U.S. So children's books had historically at that time been um, basically nobody knew what they could be or the potential they had to make money or to grab the collective interest. Mm -hmm. And so there weren't a lot of clear paths to publishing unless you probably already lived in New York City, which I did not. But I had these a handful of professors who recognized my interest and encouraged it. And so when I look back at my, my classes in college, every time I had to write a major paper, I was bending it toward children's books. And I had professors who were encouraging that. So, you know, I took a Holocaust literature course in college and everybody else was doing their thesis paper on like Sophie's Choice or, you know, something Night by Ellie DeSalle. And mine was, well, how do we teach kids about the Holocaust Mm. using children's books? And I had other professors who just really encouraged me to explore this interest and, and find ways to bring it in. And then the thing that really made it happen for me was we had a separate little library in the School of Education where you could check out books that you were going to take into the classrooms where you were doing your teaching work. So you could check out like a whole class set of something, or you could check out books and keep them longer than if you checked them out from the main public library, which is, you know, when you're teaching was really important. So it's this small little library. And one day there was a little office in the corner and this sign went up over the door with a professor's name. Well, it wasn't a professor actually. What it said was Barbara Elliman, Distinguished Scholar of Children's Literature. And I stood there and was like, I didn't even know you could 
be a distinguished scholar of children's <laughs> literature. And what I realized, you know, later was, okay, what that really meant was doesn't have a PhD, so we can't call her doctor, but she is someone very important in her field. So we're going to, you know, give her this honorific. And basically, Barbara Elliman, who I sort of joke was my fairy godmother that helped me into publishing, was someone who had spent her career in adjacent to the publishing industry. She had been a librarian. She had worked for Booklist, which is one of the big review journals. She had been on the committees that chose the big like ALA awards, the Caldecott, things like that. And she was the the wife of a guy who was on the board of trustees who was spending a lot of time, I think they were choosing a new university president at that point. So he was on campus for a lot of meetings and, and they always did everything together. So she kind of looked around and said, what can I do while he's in all of these meetings? And basically came to them and said, your little, your little school of education library is a mess. Let me fix it. And they were oh. like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I love that. Getting things done. Let me tell you. So we struck up a rapport because I was fascinated that she had this connection to children's books. And, you know, she'd also lived this very glamorous life and new theater and sort of all the things that were interesting to me. And eventually she said, you know, I would just kind of find reasons to drop by and linger in her office. And finally she said, you know, I'd be willing to do an independent study with you if you want it. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I haven't taken hardly any electives because I've been doing this double major this whole time, but like, this is too interesting and too big of a chance to, to not say yes to. So we did an independent study for a semester and it was one of the semesters that she was on, or uh, one of the years that she was on a big awards committee. So she was getting boxes of books mailed from the publishers constantly. And I would sit in her office and we would open up the boxes and we would talk about the books. And sometimes she would put me on the phone to talk to the editor or to the author if they were someone she knew. And she really just kind of like cracked open the fact that there was this whole world. And Later, one of my English professors, I had been telling her about how great this experience had been. She said, well, you know, you still have some creative writing credits that you need to do. I'd kind of been saving the best for last. Said, Most of our students like who, who are really interested in, in writing do some sort of internship. And this is Milwaukee. So a lot of our students go do a copywriting internship at like Anheuser-Busch or they do advertising writing for Harley Davidson or like one of the big corporations in town. But it sounds like what you would want is to do something in publishing. And we don't really have those connections. But, you know, maybe Dr. Elman would. So I ended up interning in, I guess it was 1999 at a small press in Chicago. I would take the train once a week from Milwaukee to Chicago and I would sit in this office that overlooked Lake Michigan. I've never had such a glam office since. I think somebody must have just left (laughs) and they like stuck the intern in the office. And it was at Cricket Books, which Cricket Magazine has been around for a long time. Ladybug, Babybug, all of those. And they had a short-lived books imprint. and, And that was the time that I was there. And I interned under a great editor who had worked at FSG at Macmillan for a while in New York and had moved back to Chicago. And again, she really sort of opened up like, this is what the job of working at a publisher is about. and This is what an editor does. And at the end of it all, she said to me, I don't know if you really want to work as a teacher. I think you want to work in children's books. And I said to her, you know, I think you're probably right. But 
I've been working, you know, with everything in me to get this double major in four years. And you better believe I'm going to go do my student teaching next semester and, and get that teacher's license. She said, okay, but I want you to keep working for me. So she paid me the whopping sum of $10 an hour <laughs> to continue remote interning for her, which at that time, it was long before email submissions were a thing. So when she would go speak at a writer's conference, she would get boxes of paper submissions and she would forward a box of paper submissions to me every couple of weeks. And I would read through them and the things that were obviously no's I would pass on and send, you know, send the letter in the self-addressed stamped envelope that you used to have to send when you submitted a manuscript and anything that seemed better than average, I would write a report on and send it back to her. And it just really confirmed that that was what I wanted to be doing. And I, I did student teach and I didn't love it. Oh. And at the end of it all, I just realized this is where this is where my heart is. I want to work in children's books. And honestly, kids have too many teachers who aren't in love with it for me to be one more of them. So yeah. let me go do this other thing. I sidestepped for a couple of years. I, I mentioned before I went to a very activist college. Everybody went off to save the world in various ways yeah. for a couple of years post-grad. So I, I did some volunteer work for a couple of years. But then I moved to New York City knowing that I wanted to work in children's books. In between, I, I had had a summer where I interned at a different small publisher. At the time, I was living in Minneapolis. I had crashed with a friend post-college. And over that summer, I worked at Learner Books, um, which is a, a small publisher that's largely oriented to the school and library market. And so mm. I moved to New York in 2002, not very long after 9-11. The whole city was still yeah. in somewhat of freeze. And the city said no to me for a while. And I interned for so many jobs where people, or I, I interviewed for so many jobs where people said like, you seem great and really passionate and we're in a hiring freeze. Uh, and so when I finally did get hired, you know, after like working a bunch of temp jobs and, you know, sort of every side hustle I could do for the first six months or so, I landed at Clarion Books, which is an imprint of Houghton Mifflin. And I, I got a job in school and library marketing, wow. which was not the job I wanted. I wanted to be an editor, but you know, the door finally opened and it was children's books and it felt close enough. Wow. And that turned out to be one of the most beneficial things that ever happened to me because it forced me to learn the business through a different lens than the one that I was already sort of oriented toward. And, and I have a vivid memory of the first time I was sitting in a big conference room at a, you know, sales meeting and realized, nobody here cares if I like these books we're talking about. Like I'm mm. still in English major mode, right? Like nobody yeah. wants me to a five paragraph essay about the book that we're about to publish. My job is to figure out how do we sell it and who are we selling it to and who's the audience and how do we get it to them? And that's really one of the key questions of publishing is who is the audience and how do we connect this book and that audience? And so it really gave me this, this completely sort of unemotional lens to look at publishing through. And still many years later and, and many hats professionally later, that's one of the first questions I ask myself, you know, once I read something and I think, Oh, I love this, or, you know, this is exciting. The very next thing in my head is, okay, who's the audience? Mm. And if I can't answer that, then, you know, my, my response is usually that I'm not the person who should be trying to 
make it happen because if I don't have a vision for it, I I should stand down and let someone who does because I'm not actually going to be helping it all the way through. That is such a great point because I never thought of that. I just thought, oh, if it resonates with you so much, then you'll just go forth with it. But yeah, I thank God you were able to find out early on in your career that question, who is the audience? Who do we market this to? To then help you filter out which work that you both, you and the author can work well together where it's beneficial for everyone or else ends up being way too much of a weight on you to try and push, push, push when you couldn't figure out the audience in the first place. And in a way it's kind of irresponsible, I think. You know, sometimes I tell my clients now as an agent, when we get you know, because it's disappointing to hear an editor say, I loved this, but I couldn't get this through, or I loved this, but I don't think my sales and marketing team are going to really understand it enough to know what to do with it. Like that feels so disappointing because it's such a close right. call. But I, I actually think it's one of the more responsible things that an editor can say, That's because true. they're basically saying, you know, let you find an opportunity where the sky's the limit instead of this scenario where I'm going to tell you I love it and then nothing else is going to really happen for it, which can be so heartbreaking after, you know, all of the hope and all of the work. I want to touch on the part where you said when you moved to New York City shortly after 9-11, and I know I've actually had a few guests on before, and my gosh, it was heartbreaking to hear how, you know, some people who already just moved right before 9-11 as well, it was really difficult to find a job. It was very difficult to stay in a job as well during that time. So I know you said that you were jumping from temp to temp to temp to basically survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, New York City is a very expensive city to live in and to try and make a living out of. Is this the time, because I read in your bio that you've been a florist, a cake decorator, and a waitress. (laughs) And also I read that you were a theater nerd and you've also studied ballet growing up. Ballet and theater were sort of high school growing up, you know, the, the obsessions you have and sort of the, it fits right in with the the English majory creative self. Yes, artsy, yeah. Exactly. I was a very artsy kid. In high school, actually, I worked at the bakery in a big suburban grocery store. So I decorated cakes. That's <laughs> and awesome. it was um, a first job. And I mean, decorating cakes was part of it. There were less glamorous parts like, you know, making 50 loaves of garlic bread and you come home reeking of garlic forevermore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yummy. You know, it was that service job thing that I actually right. think everybody should have to do at some point in their life. And also it gives you a really interesting lens on people. Yes. I have always been curious about people and people's stories and and all of that. So that was that was high school. In college I worked for a florist and then I did it a couple of times afterward because it is one of those sort of skill sets. It was kind of just a job that I fell into in college, but I loved it. Again, you're you're connecting with people and they're usually telling you the story of the person they're buying flowers for, Mm. you know, except for like funeral flowers, which of course people are sad. Most of the time if you're buying flowers for someone, it's someone's birthday, it's an anniversary, it's someone you love. So it it felt like a very human sort of connection. Mm. I also think it probably gave me an appreciation of color theory. I work with a lot of illustrators and artists and I can't draw to save my life, but (laughs) color, (laughs) color is something I can really respect to. And I, I suspect that comes out of it. And whenever it sort of comes up on Twitter or Instagram or something, and I mention like, oh, I used to be a florist, always there are a bunch of illustrators who say, oh, I was a florist too. So I think it is wow. a 
an interesting common ground thing. In New York City, to be a florist, it's like a full-time career. I mean, oh. I did it more as a, a part-time thing. But, you know, in, in New York, even to be a waiter is, is a full-time career. <laughs> Everything sort of adds together. And then, you know, the other part of my career that often people sort of are intrigued by when I, the couple of years before I moved to New York, I was a youth minister, which uh, a lot of people say, well, what does that have to do with books and publishing? And to me, it actually has everything to do with it because that work was a lot about getting to the heart of what matters to young Mm. people and connecting with people. and, And that's really what books do. And it's, for me, it was always much more interesting to work with young people in sort of the moments of question and of grappling with with big questions and big truths. I was never trying to proselytize and say like, here are the things you must believe. It's much more like, hey, have you ever thought out loud about this question? And and what is your friend next to you? Have you ever talked about this before? And, you know, I think those big questions are a lot of particularly what young adult literature faces. And in fact, I find myself over and over, the stories that I'm drawn to are not the ones that have the easy answers. They're the ones that let the reader kind of wrestle with questions and grapple with big questions and come away with their own truths and conclusions, I think that's essential work of being a human. And yeah. and really, I think, you know, belief is a very human thing. And I'm less interested in what people believe. And I'm more interested in what happens when you put your faith in something or someone and it lets you down or right. your ideas change. You know, again, I think those are very key parts of being a human in the world. And particularly when you're a young person, you're asking those questions. Sometimes for the first time, you're starting to realize that maybe you have a different perspective on these things than your family does or the people around you. So everything I've ever done sort of adds up to what I do now. And I true for writers as much as for someone like me. (laughs) I 100% agree with that, that it's all of your life experiences combined all together. Are you still a faculty of the Columbia Publishing course where you help to train a lot of publishing professionals? The last couple of summers, I've I've been part of of that faculty. And so it's a six-week course. It's one way that people can come to New York and, and get started with putting their foot into the door of publishing. It's not how I came in and and I'm, you know, quick to remind people that there are lots of roads in and and you don't have to only pay money to a grad school program to be part of it. But I have been part of it for the last couple years. And I do care about young people in publishing. And I sort of joke with the students that I teach at that course of like, this is a long con for me. Like you are, some of you are going to grow up and be editors someday and I'm going to want to sell you books. Mm. So, you know, starting to build the relationship even now is valuable, but also growing the industry and the people in it and increasingly making sure that we are a diverse industry in a way that we haven't always been in the past is a really important thing. So I'm honored to get to be a part of that and to sort of get to share some of my experience and the fact that I have had a varied 
career path. I started in marketing. I did make it over to the editorial side eventually. Um, I was an editor at HarperCollins for several years. I published, in fact, <laughs> last year, you know, it's it's funny, you never quite realize you're getting older until suddenly one day you are. Last year, <laughs> my students informed me that they had been teenagers when some of the books that I published <laughs> as an editor first came out. I want to get into that too, where you were an editor for quite a bit and you were at HarperCollins children's books where you acquired Veronica Roth's Divergent series. Well, so I'll back up and sort of pick up my own story because I think it it does play into this. So I worked in marketing at Clarion Books for a couple of years. And the whole time I was interviewing and trying to get myself into an editorial job. But, you know, I was overqualified or I was underqualified. So finally, I thought, okay, I guess I'm going to be in marketing forever. And I've had the little boutique imprint experience at this sort of small, slightly old fashioned house in a charming way. It was almost like a different era of publishing. Let's go get the big corporate experience because then I can figure out where, where I want my career to be. So I moved over to HarperCollins, still in the school and library marketing side. But increasingly, you know, after a couple of years there, I realized like I'm still just not doing the work I want to be doing every day. Everything I was doing I loved it. You know, I was I was working with authors. A lot of that job was going to the big conferences that publishers make connections with teachers and with librarians. So going to ALA and going to NCTE, the National Council of Teachers of English and the American Library Association and the International Reading Association, all of these, wow. you know, like I was the one packing up the boxes and shipping them off and setting up the booth and setting the schedule of author signings and all that kind of behind the scenes, which turned out to be very valuable because it meant that I was making connections with really important librarians all across the country who Mm -hmm. can have a real impact on books getting known and books getting into hands of young people. It is one of those things that sort of rolls forward from the work that I've done Publishing is a very relationship-based industry. It's not just widgets and boxes. It's it's humans at every stage of it. It's, you know, one human telling a story to another. And part of what editors and agents do is like we're facilitating what's hopefully going to be a relationship between a book and a whole lot of humans to come, really. Mm. So publishing is very relationship-based. So I was doing that school and library work for a couple of years. And finally, I went to HR at HarperCollins and said, you know, I'm just on the wrong side of the table. Like a lot of what I do is this very sort of ephemeral work. I'm I'm doing these conferences, but I'm the one who would like hire the person who writes the reading group guide or the, the teacher discussion guide. And like, that's great. But it's also the kind of thing that it doesn't live forever. You know, it's the kind of thing people leave behind in the hotel room sometimes. And I wanted to work on books that, that live on shelves for decades. And we had a brief shining moment of a helpful HR person who said, okay, you know, like we're going to help you get across here when the right opportunity comes up, you know, that we don't just hire for a particular position or for a particular boss. You're going to have to take some steps back in order, you know, to make this happen. And so, so eventually I did, I moved over to a small new imprint under Brenda Bowen, who is herself now a literary agent, but at the time had a short lived imprint at HarperCollins. Um, She came in to build an, an imprint and That imprint lasted for about a year and a half. And just as the first books were starting to come out in the world, because bookmaking is a slow process, Mm. is when the 2008 recession happened. And because Mm. it was a new imprint, we hadn't made any money yet, but we, you know, spent a lot, like we were very much still in the red. It was an obvious 
cut for the powers that be at HarperCollins. So they laid her off. Luckily, they did not lay me off at the same time because I had also been, I had been her assistant, but I had been the assistant to another editor. And so that other editor and I were moved to a new imprint. So my sort of formative editorial sensibility (laughs) (laughs) was realizing I work for a corporation and if I don't make money for this corporation, they are not going to keep employing me. (laughs) Mm. Sort of a healthy dose of fear. And I started out like this was the era of Twilight and its many sort of successors. And I tried very hard to like that kind of story. You know, I was reading all these submissions that were paranormal romances, but it wasn't it wasn't truly the kind of story. I mean, I I gobbled those books up like everybody else. But as an editor, it wasn't a match for me. And there were already so many editors doing that kind of book well, that I really kind of had to have a heart to heart with myself and say, like, you're never going to be good at this. Like you're trying to make a kind of book that you don't ultimately love, like shift the paradigm and think about the kind of books you love and Mm. go after those instead. And that might be how you have a chance to stay employed. So I started having lunches with agents and telling them, you know, what I'm really intrigued by. And it's interesting because these aren't the books that I grew up reading, but I realized that I was very intrigued by books that were sort of five minutes in the future or, you know, sort of you take our normal and you shift it. And if you skew it, 14% is a completely different story than if you skew it 160% or if you, you know, skew it like 230 degrees, like those are all wildly different stories, but based off of our world somehow. So we didn't even have the word dystopian yet in our sort of collective conversation. Like this is what, like how I was explaining it to people, like send me your weird speculative stuff or your things (laughs) that have a big what if at the heart of them. And I'm still interested in any story that has a big what if at the heart of it. And I got a lot of submissions from agents, some of which went on to be published, although not by me, that were exploring things that I could see that, you know, were really compelling to the 20 and 30 somethings who were the editors and agents of New York City. A lot of Mm. sort of YA renditions of The Handmaid's Tale about female sexuality and reproduction and sort of those big questions. I could see the appeal of them, but I, for me, it felt like that wasn't the kind of story that, that was really going to rivet me as a teenager. When Divergent came to me. So so basically I had had one of these lunches with Joanna mm. and I had given her my spiel of like, this is what I think I'm looking for. And I'm really eager to acquire because I, I want to keep my job at HarperCollins. <laughs> and so she called me as she did, you know, an editor at every house and pitched me that book. And because I was a hungry young editor, I started reading it that night on the subway. At the time, HarperCollins was up in the mid fifties. And so I remember like, it's one of those sort of like visceral memories. And also I've told this story a number of times now, but I read the first couple of pages and by, you know, so I got on the train at 55th street and by 33rd street, I sort of had goosebumps of like, oh, this is really good writing. Like I am in the hands of a really confident writer. And by the time, so I lived in Brooklyn then, and I I would take the the F train. And so um, there's a period where the F train goes above ground for two or three stops, which is when everybody, this was back before, I mean, there's, there's only arguably some cell service in some subway stations even today, but in 
2008 or nine, whenever this was, there was a lot less. So you'd go above ground and literally the whole train would whip out their cell phone and quickly send whatever (laughs) text or make whatever call. And by that point, I was sending the text to my friend that I was supposed to have dinner with that night. And I canceled dinner because I was reading Divergent (laughs) and I knew I had to keep reading it. And I went and sat in this little coffee shop. It was like a coffee bar slash wine bar and read it until they closed at around midnight and was still reading and went home and read until four in the morning. And then I stumbled into work the next morning and I went into my boss's office and said, like, I read this thing and factions and abnegation and, and, and dauntless. And she was like, what? <laughs> and this was a relatively new boss because I had been, I had the work boss that I had yeah. been working for had been laid off. And so we didn't have a whole lot of rapport built up yet. And I sort of stumbled into her office blinders on of like, I have to tell you about this amazing thing that I read, not realizing like she'd just come out of a meeting and maybe it hadn't gone well or whatever. So she basically kind of brushed me off and was Mm. like, okay, okay, give me, again, this is still when we mostly read on paper. I read it on my Sony e-reader, which is (laughs) a very old school version of the iPad, but she still (gasps) paper. She said, you know, print out the first 30 pages and I'll read it over the weekend. And I went and I sat back at my desk and I fumed and I was like, ah, I didn't do a good enough job, like telling her how great this is. So later on, you know, I sort of summoned up my courage and I went back and I was like, and I had printed out the whole thing. And I said, I didn't do a good enough job telling you about this book because it's really kind of complicated concept, but it's so good and it's so strong and you have to take the whole thing home and you have to read it this weekend because I want to buy it. Wow. <laughs> so anyways, fast forward, we did buy it very quickly um, in the kind of story that happens sometimes for books, although not all the time. It's certainly not the only way that books happen, but it was a really exciting ride and it was the second book I ever acquired as an editor. So I was a very young editor. Joe was a young agent. Veronica was a young author. And that energy was part of, I think, what made it successful. And part of, for me as an editor, part of the value that I know I added to that series was I had spent seven years before that, building up rapport with all of these educators and booksellers and librarians in my role as a marketing person. And I basically, you know, sent them all early copies of it and said, like, this is my first big book. You know, I'd signed up one other book, which was lovely, but it was a different kind of project. My first big book, love it. I think you're going to want to talk to your students about it or your, you know, constituents or librarians about it, your patrons. And they did. And so- you know, that, that all of those relationships that I'd spent all that time building paid off. And I think that is still part of how we make books work. You know, every time you have to reinvent the audience for a book, every time you have to think about where are we going to start the buzz for this book? Is it going to start with teachers? Is it going to start with librarians? Is it going to start with consumers themselves? So it was a really exciting couple of years, as you can imagine. I knew it was something special. And I knew it was, for me, before it was everything it became, what it was for me was really a victory of my own personal taste of me saying, what's the kind of book that I know I would be the right editor for and going after that. So it was kind of this, this victory of recognizing what it is that you're supposed to be doing and not trying to just be a derivative version of other people's successes. And it changed a lot of 
our lives. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can imagine. I can only imagine. So when you're saying that you acquired it, it was your only or second book at such a young age. Can you then walk me through like, what else then does your role as editor do after you acquire books like the Divergent series? Well, so, and this isn't the case just for a book like Divergent. This is really the case for every single book any editor acquires ever. It's a manifold job, but two main, two main jobs within that. One is the editor is working with the author mm. to make that book as strong as possible. So, you know, the revision process, which is looking both at like the book as it exists on paper in the draft that you receive, but also trying to understand kind of the the white space around it of like, what could this book be that it isn't yet? And where the places where the author's vision, like the way they see the story in their head and what's on the paper aren't yet totally matching. Because really what an author is doing is taking a world that's alive in their mind and transcribing it onto paper. And sometimes they don't even know yet what parts of the world that's alive in their head or the story that's alive in their head is on the page and what's not yet. So that's a lot of the editorial work is developing it. So in the case of Divergent, it was a strong draft when it came to me. That's the work that Joanna and Veronica had done in that time frame between when Joanna met her at a writer's conference and eventually signed her. And then, yeah. you know, she had to write the whole draft. But then I came in and sort of with fresh eyes and and said, okay, it's already strong, but here are the ways that I, I think it could be stronger. And, you know, one of the sort of joys as an editor is you have a sense of, what the right questions to ask might be. And you're kind of trying to help an author unlock an even greater version of their story than they first brought to you. And because of that, you can sort of point at like your invisible fingerprints on the story where like this scene exists because I asked the author to think about this question. Right. And that's what every editor does in every book. And they can sort of see like, these are the places where I helped the author tell the best story they could, tell the story they wanted to be telling. So that's one part of the job is, is working on the creative side. But the other equally important part of the job of an editor is that they are the book's advocate in-house. And so they are setting the vision that will get carried forward into what the sales reps say about the book to booksellers who then say it to customers, what publicity says to reporters who then write about it. All of that is being set by the editor initially. So figuring out what the right messages to convey are. For me, part of what made me respond so much to Divergent was unlike some of those other dystopian stories that I had read, this one felt to me like the central question was so resonant for so many different kinds of people. That idea of you make one choice and it changes everything about the rest of your life. Like that's something you can understand as a 15-year-old, it means something different as a 20-year-old and as a 30-year-old and as a 60-year-old. Mm. Like everybody can look back and go like, oh yeah, it was this choice that I made that impacted all of these other things. And so I knew that that to me was the thing to emphasize. And so even in things like the flap copy and the tagline, you know, yeah. on the first book was one choice can transform you. Like that was what we carried forward. And that, that was sort of the messaging. So 
the editor's job, it's like telling the story of the book and telling the story of the author then is going to get told over and over all the way into the public's eye. So, you know, initially talking about the author, talking about their expertise, talking about the story and figuring out the right ways to do all of that and and set the course for it a little bit. And and figuring out, you know, with a project like that, all of the synergy that needs to happen between all of the different departments of a publisher. How do you think you were able to see where the story could go to know what were the right questions? Do you feel like what you learned in your English major helped tie into this? Or it was more so from all of the real life experience that you've had throughout all the years right before that job at HarperCollins Children's Books gave you all of that skill to know how to communicate, to know what questions to ask? Well, I think the first thing that I'll say is a lot of what an editor knows comes from being a reader. Mm. Again, if I were going to boil it down into two things, an editor is kind of a glorified project manager. They're, you know, keeping everything on track and making sure that the the vision that's being conveyed in the copy matches what's on the cover matches what publicity is saying to their contacts. But they're also a highly trained reader. And for the years that I was an editor, which was about Five years total. <laughs> There's so much of the story we haven't even told yet, Yen. Right? <laughs> I'm not an editor now. But what I finally came to, you know, because I, I am someone for whom putting words around an experience or a thing is is very important to me. I mean, it's it's the way my brain processes the world. And so for a long time, I was trying to articulate, like, what is the role of an editor? And Agents have it really easy. We can say our job is to advocate for the author, for the illustrator, for the for the talent. So the the obvious sort of inverse of that is an editor's job is to advocate for the publisher, right? Except that that basically means like I'm working for the man, which mm. you are, but that's rarely the reason why editors get into their jobs. You know, most editors didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I want to go be part of talent acquisition for a global multinational corporation. Like that's not how they're thinking about it. (laughs) They're thinking about, I care about story. I care about readers. So the definition that I had for myself when I was an editor was that my job was to be the advocate for the reader. And that's really a lot of what an editor does is Think about, okay, what's the reading experience of this story going to be? And where's the point where someone's going to get tangled in the plot? Where's the point where, you know, is it starting too slow? Like basically, what's going to make a reader put this book down partway through and come back to it later or maybe never come back to it? And that's what we want to solve for, right? So like I am advocating for the reader to have the best possible experience with the book so that it can intrinsically change and impact who they are as a human moving in the world. And if that's what I'm thinking about, then that's directing what I'm asking the author in turn to think about. And, you know, I'm saying like, oh, you've got like three different themes going on here and maybe we need to streamline a little bit more. You have these two characters who are kind of serving the same purpose. What if we merged them into one for the sake of simplicity, or you have one too many subplots or not enough subplots, or, you know, we're not able to really follow this character's arc very clearly. It's, it's gotten a little bit muddled or why would they even make this choice that they're making? You have to show us more. So you're really kind of clearing the pathway for the, for the reader's experience. So 
a lot of that comes from having been a highly invested reader (laughs) for a long, long time. And from having read a lot of books, it's part of the reason we always tell writers, like part of being a writer is you need to read a lot because it's what helps you understand the realm of possibility for yourself as a writer. So I think that's part of where I got whatever I knew as a young editor. The other thing about publishing is it is an apprenticeship based business. And so in fact, I, I, most beautifully heard this expressed by an editor, Wendy Lamb, who has recently retired, but was the editor of many award-winning books and a beautiful human. And when I was trying very hard to move from the marketing role to the editorial side, I went and had a meeting with her. Someone had recommended that she might be a good person to talk to. And she was very generous and, and gave me some of her time and some of her wisdom. And one of the questions I asked her was, you know, I'm already five or six years into publishing and like, I think to really do this editorial thing, I'm going to have to take some steps back and like, I'm going to have to have a lower title. And like, do I really have to do all that? Like, isn't there a shortcut I can take basically was what I heard. And she pulled over a manuscript on her desk and sort of flipped through it. And and I saw like all the marks she had made in the margins and the the notes she'd made and the copy editing. And she said, you know, to be an editor, you have to walk in the pencil marks of another editor for a long time. Like you learn how to ask the right questions by seeing someone else ask questions of another writer. When when I was at Clarion, one of the lovely old fashioned things that used to happen there that has kind of fallen by the wayside in publishing as everything went digital is we used to have something called the circle folder, which meant that anytime anyone, editor, marketing person, anyone had important correspondence with an author, they would print out a copy of it and put it in this folder. And then once a week, that folder would circulate around all of the employees. So Mm -hmm. I was reading the editorial letters that, you know, these amazing editors who'd spent their career at Clarion editing Newbery winners and Caldecott winners, I was getting to see the correspondence they had and the way the sort of art of asking an author to do the thing that you think they need to do for the sake of the story, but somehow making them think it's their own idea. Mm. (laughs) And a lot of that, again, you learn by, by reading and doing. I will also say that, you know, as a, as a young editor, I made some mistakes that, you know, I look back now and think, oh, I would do that very differently today. Or I understand, you know, how I would handle that differently. You know, we, we are humans in this business doing the best we can today. And one of the things that we learn as editors and writers is that like you have a whole body of work if you're lucky as an author or as an illustrator. And if you think of any author or illustrator you admire and you go look at all of the books they've published, you will see how they've grown. I think we see this even more in illustrators than we do authors because it's it's actually visual. Mm. And you can see like, wow, their style has changed or they've like honed it and they've refined it. And like, we can, we can actually see the progress that someone has made over the course of their career, which I think is such a gift that we can look back and see like, Oh, the people we admire so much, they were once beginners too. Yes. I love (laughs) something I I sometimes tell my clients is like, you're, you know, when they're sort of in the throes of a little bit of, of panicking about like, am I going to do justice to the idea I have or to the chance I've been given to share this with the world? 
I remind them like your job is to make the best book you can today. Mm -hmm. And if you do everything right five years from now, yeah, you'll look back and you'll see, I would have done this differently, or I would have done that differently. But that's because you've been a human who's growing. And so I think the same is true for us on the publishing professional side. We learn with every book that we make and with every project that we help put out into the world. Like, this is a thing that worked well. I'll try this again. This went terribly awry. Not going to do it that way. (laughs) You know, like, like it is, it is a human business in every facet of it. Yes. I can't help but see how much all of these experiences inform how you are as a literary agent today. It's just incredible. And you know, what I love about having you on this podcast is how many different hats you've worn and how you do believe as well that all of these tie in together and it it matters with everything that you do. And you don't discount any experience and you take it all and take it as a learning lesson, which I think is very humbling. And Molly, I would really love to hear then where did that first spark come where you're like, you know what? I kind of curious about literary agenting. So I had actually flirted with agenting a couple of times oh. at different points in my career, okay. but it was always me. And I can say this in hindsight, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was always me when I was kind of dissatisfied with where I was thinking like, well, maybe this is an option. So once when I was still in marketing and I was like, well, maybe if I can't be an editor, I should go be an agent. That's a thing. And I had a meeting with an, an agent to learn more about what it was. But I knew at that point, like, I'm not going to be really satisfied till I do this editor thing. And then, you know, at one point when I was editing, I thought about it, but it wasn't really, in fact, I, I confided in another editor friend and, and he said, oh, the agent escape hatch. And I was like, oh man, that's totally what I'm doing here. <laughs> I'm not doing it because I want to be an agent. I'm doing it because I want out of this particularly frustrating moment I'm in. But I always had had people tell me that they thought I would be a good agent. For most of my career, people said that to me. And I think what they were putting their finger on is that I am a connector of people and of ideas, as you were sort of alluding to. And that is one of the skill sets as an agent. So a lot of people had said like, oh, you should be an agent. But I am a stubborn person. And if enough (laughs) people tell me that I should do something, I generally want to do the opposite. So I had to come to it in my own time. And I think part of that too was recognizing the responsibility of agenting, you know, in a very different way than when you're an editor, you work for a corporation. And yes, it's distressing for authors when an editor leaves their job and, you know, goes off to do something different, but the corporation is going to going to bring you a new editor. You're, you're not going to have just like this empty space and being aware that as an agent, like you're saying, like, I'm going to be responsible for your career clients. Um, and, and not wanting to do that lightly. I mean, obviously still life happens and unexpected things change and people don't stay in careers forever, but I knew if I was ever going to do it, I wanted to do it with my whole heart. Kind of, I guess, in, in the same way when I was thinking about leaving teaching or should I be a teacher? It was like, you know, like I want to do this wholeheartedly. And and really that's the part of me that was once 
a youth minister. Like I am at my best when I am evangelizing something I believe in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days that is books and stories and, and bookmakers. So I actually left HarperCollins and really no one was more surprised than me when I stopped being an editor because I had fought so hard to get there. But I had an opportunity that felt like it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to go work for a startup, actually. And it was at one of the moments where publishing was evolving quickly. And Penguin and Random House had just merged. It felt like maybe there were going to be more big mergers like that. And it felt like maybe Amazon was going to eat the whole industry in five Mm. minutes. And I thought, you know what, it would be interesting to go get a different skill set. And I was also pushing back a little bit against, I think, expectations, because one of the things that happens when you are an editor who's published a successful book series is that lots of other houses want you to come work for them. Everybody says, come work for us. Do that same thing you just did. Oh, and by the way, can you do it? better, faster, smarter, please. And that's a huge amount of pressure. And it's, it's kind of lightning in a bottle stuff, right? Like if we could all make a global phenomenon happen, like once a season, (laughs) we totally would. right? Right, Right. So I knew that to go work for another house with that expectation in a way was kind of, you know, it's like the embodiment of the, like, it's a trap right? Like meme. Like it's a yeah. trap to do that. And I had seen other editors who had gone and who had done that, you know, had moved from one very successful project and, and leveraged that into a position in another house. And then as inevitably happens in our industry, when there's downsizing, when there's layoffs, they were often the first one who got fired because they had been paid a lot of money and the expectations of what they were going to do were so high. So I I sort of knew that like, I didn't want to just go do the same thing again. And I had accidentally sort of built this relationship with an interesting startup on Twitter of all places, back when Twitter was was an interesting place to meet interesting people instead of a place for rants. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Proper socializing. It was when it was more this like glorious water cooler where we were all connected to interesting people that we might not have otherwise encountered. And um, there was this startup that was the sort of simplest way to describe it. It was this kind of like Wattpad, but for younger readers. It was an art-based writing company called Storybird. And they brought me in, and I'll sort of fast forward through this because it's only adjacent to a certain degree, but they brought me in to see like, okay, what, what can this tool be in terms of publishing? Lots of people were, were coming and using the artwork and using our technology to create stories. Now, what do we do with those stories? And so I spent a couple of years there and it was incredibly valuable. It taught my brain to think in very different patterns. The publishing brain, I always tell people, is very linear. You have to really do everything in kind of the specific order every time in order to get the product that you want at the end, which is the book on the shelf at the time that you want it there. There's not a lot of variation in the process. But the startup brain, the tech-minded brain, your micro and your macro and your 10 minutes in the future and your 10 years in the future, all within like the same conversation. And so I learned a lot about a different understanding of risk than, than I had had in my brain from publishing. I learned a lot about tech. I learned about coding and that really coding is kind of just a different language. It's not this scary thing that uh, I think some of us in, who are, who are English majors think it is. And 
yeah, just kind of got outside of my own space for a little while. Publishing is an amazing world, the kidlit world, the YA world. They're amazing, but they're small. They're insular little spaces. And I had really been just immersed in it nonstop for the years before that. And, and stepping away from it, Again, I don't think I realized or maybe I knew it instinctively but didn't have words for it. It was a really healthy thing for me to step outside of it for a minute and learn how to be a beginner at something. I think as adults we don't we don't always let ourselves be bad at something and come at something that we don't know, know how to do. We want to be experts at everything. So, it was really a valuable sort of reset button that I that I hit on myself and I worked with some great people and learned a lot, but it was a, it was a startup. And as happens with startups, it was venture capital funded. Eventually that funding ran out. We didn't Mm. get another round of funding. And so it was time to reinvent. And at that point I didn't really want to go back into a corporate publisher. And I had a couple of months, I I had some severance and I basically told myself, I'm going to, I'm going to use this time to just kind of very quietly figure out what's my next move. I'm not going to tell all the publishers that like, I might be available for hire again, because I knew if I was so lucky that that one of them would offer me a position that my lizard brain would be like, oh, that's the safe thing. Do that. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to keep pushing at what did I really want to do before I let someone else tell me what I should do. So what I told everybody at the beginning of that, it was about three months that I took. I said, okay, what I know I'm not going to do is I'm not going to be a literary agent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just going to rule of that right out. And I'm going to think about like all these other tech jobs, like maybe I want to go deeper into that sector, or I'm going to think about like, maybe I want to build something of my own, because that was part of what I learned was that I really like the early stages of things. And, you know, I drew up business plans for a couple different things. I threw myself into conferences that I'd never gone to that were completely outside of publishing. And then very slowly, and I talked to a lot of writers about like, what doesn't exist that you wish would that I could build. And slowly what I came around to is actually, maybe I do want to be a literary agent. (laughs) And part of this was talking to writers that I'd worked with who, who sort of said, you know, when you were my editor, you kind of acted like you were my agent too, even though that wasn't really your job and you'd be really good at this. And so I think I, I had to be ready to approach it as a proactive thing. Like, yes, maybe I want to do this instead of, I want to stop doing the other job <laughs> like mm. I had I had before. And so, you know, I started thinking about different writers I'd met over the years that I had pointed in the direction of my friends who were literary agents or, you know, when I was an editor, some of my clients came to me through agents, but I often was going out and finding talent on my own and realizing like, oh, I have the skill set to do this if I want to. And finally realized this is the thing that blends this weird career that I've had that's had all these different hats. It kind of pulls them all together. But I had to be I had to be sure that I wanted to to do it because yeah. I didn't want to flirt with it and take people's professional careers into my hands only to abandon them a few minutes later. You know, you're not a half-assing kind of person at all. <laughs> and you're you're getting that idea, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. So I started agenting about four years ago. It was four years ago in January. I worked briefly for an agency that no longer exists called Waxman Level. A big part of why I went there is that my good friend Holly Root worked there and had worked there 
most of the time that I had known her and we had been friends our whole careers. And I, I always knew that I admired the way she worked with her authors and the way she did business and thought, well, if that's where she's coming from, that's where I'll go. And part of the interesting thing is we had been friends most of our careers and the whole time I had been an editor, she had tried to sell me books, but we actually never had a project together because our taste is very different. So we really liked each other. We really respected each other, probably because we didn't have a book together and didn't have the sort of complicated power dynamics of agent and editor. We were able to just be friends. But it also meant that it made sense for me to go to an agency where she was because I would be representing a very different kind of book than she was. Eventually, as your listeners can hear as they listen to her episode, she started her own agency. And shortly after that point, the partners, Waxman and Level, two, two guys, they decided to split and go separate ways because they had different career ambitions, which released those of us that worked for the agency to go find our next move. So it was a very obvious thing for me to move over and join the then young Root Literary. So I, I wasn't there. It's <laughs> In Texas, there's this saying, uh, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got there as fast as I could. <laughs> <laughs> It's like you see it on bumper stickers and people wear it on t-shirts. So I feel like that at Root Literary. Like I wasn't I wasn't there from day one, but I got there as quickly as I could and joined them, I guess about two and a half years ago. Um wow. and so it's great because my tastes are different than the other agents there. We each kind of have our, our different realms of expertise. Holly and Taylor. Taylor started as as Holly's assistant at one point. She's now a powerhouse in her own right. But they have sort of overlapping tastes because often you do sort of end up with similar tastes to the people you work with when you're developing your your taste. So they both kill it in the women's fiction and romance space. They do YA and, and a smattering of middle grade. I'm kind of the opposite in that I start at YA and go down. So I mm. represent illustrators. I represent graphic novelists. I do picture books, early readers, and then middle grade and young adult as well, which as an agency, just gives us breadth that all of us um, are, are doing different things. We've got a couple other agents. Melanie, who started out as an agency assistant, is now been building her own list and figuring out sort of which aspects of all of us are, are her shape as an agent. Um, we recently had another agent join us whose expertise is largely in the sci-fi fantasy sphere. She's going to be growing her list. So there's, there's a, a little bit of everything, which is nice because as an agent, you evolve as your clients evolve. And so mm, yes. clients may start out doing one thing. And then after they've done that for five or 10 years, they think, you know what I've always wanted to do? Actually, I've always wanted to do this other kind of writing. And having having colleagues who speak the languages of all the different parts of the publishing industry means that even if I haven't had as much versing in that space, one of my colleagues usually has and, and can help translate the, the parts of it that I don't know as clearly. All right. And that wraps up part one of this beautiful conversation with Molly O'Neill. Make sure you look out for part two to hear the rest of our conversation where Molly continues to share how she became a literary agent and what she looks for as an agent. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Molly on Twitter at Molly underscore O'Neill and on Instagram at 
Molly O'Neill Books. To find all the resources and books Molly mentioned throughout the first part of her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Molly's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash molly O'Neill. For those of you who are curious about the agency where Molly works at, which is Root Literary, we also featured Holly Root, the founder of Root Literary, on our podcast. So all you have to do to listen to Holly's episode is head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash holly root where we get into Holly's entrepreneurial mindset as a literary agent. And you'll also get to hear our conversation about her thoughts on authors as entrepreneurs. Again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash holly root. And it's a great episode to listen to right after Molly's. If you are looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress, along with swapping recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole lot more that happens in there. So if this is vibing with you, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I will catch you not this Thursday, but the one after that.